three months ago, which now seems like an eternity, I had Buck Hartzell join me for our January mailbag, and I surmised aloud that maybe, maybe we hadn't done enough on dividend investing on the Rule Breaker Investing podcast. I say maybe because it was very much up in the air in my own mind at the time about whether dividends have any real place in Rule Breaker Investing, period. Now, I pick dividend stocks, mostly for stock advisors, sometimes for rule breakers. And I think you know what dividends are, cash payments that companies make to shareholders as a reward for owning the stock. But for companies exhibiting dynamic growth of the kind we favor, rarely would such companies want to just pay out their cash to shareholders when they could use it as fuel for their own rocket. Right? Right? So we asked you on a Twitter poll on January 30th, should David invite Buck Hartzell back on for a Rule Breaker Investing podcast this spring to discuss dividend investing? And the response was undeniable. 77.3% of you said yes. Only 12.5% said no. 10% of you said polls were your pet peeve. And so Buck realized that you love him. You really love him or at least the idea of our dedicating a single full episode of this podcast to dividend investing you might love. And so here we are, this week only on Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner. Thank you so much for joining with me. And with Buck and our special guest, whom we have not yet revealed this week, but three of us are here all episode long to talk with you about dividend investing. Now, these stocks are very different from the five that I picked one week ago. That's right. I picked last week on this podcast five stocks for the coronavirus. How could I not? So please, if you didn't enjoy that, go back and listen and take five free stock picks, stocks that were picked with an awareness of what's happening in the world today and where the world might be headed. So we'll hope that that five-stock sampler performs well for all of us in the years to come. And speaking of five-stock samplers and their performance, that's where we're headed next week. So next week, I will be reviewing three past April stock samplers. That's right, one from three years ago, one from two years ago, and one from last year. So it will be a review-a-palooza on next week's Rule Breaker Investing. But That was last week, and that is next week, but we're living in the here and now in ways you and I might never have really thought much about before, but that's where we are this week, and how could I not be delighted now to introduce Buck Hartzell, to reintroduce Buck to the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. Buck, how you doing? I'm doing very well, David. Thank you for having me back. It's kind of surreal when you look back at the last time I was on and and people wanted us back to talk about dividends and all that's happened uh, in the world and um, certainly in our country here. And um, thoughts go out to all those people that have been impacted uh, by the virus. But it's great to be here and talking about uh, dividend stocks. And I'm delighted. Where are you tapping in from this particular week? All of us are doing this remotely. I think my listeners know this, but our sound may be better, probably worse than normal. And uh Buck, where are you calling yep. in from? I am um, tapping in from my home office in Alexandria, Virginia. So just a, f- a f- couple miles away from Full HQ, but certainly not the fancy um, setup that we have at Full HQ. Excellent. Now, you mentioned how some things in the world have changed. Some dividends have been slashed. I've noticed that. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that. But then again, Buck, some dividends have continued to be paid. So there is some constancy when we think about dividend investing. Yes, this is interesting. When we, you know, we're going to come up with some stocks. Certainly, at the end, we're going to talk about some companies that I like with dividends. And um, a few weeks ago, I started looking at some, but things were changing so much day to day that I was like, forget about this. So I actually picked these stocks yesterday, <laughs> and so things have been changing uh, so much. But I think one of the things, and our special guest may talk a little bit about this as well is dividend payments are less volatile than stock prices. And that's one of the kind of nice things about having some dividend payers in your portfolio. And certainly some have cut their dividends or slashed the dividends entirely, but a lot of them are still making those payments um, uh, today. Mm. And that's a really good point. Well, Buck, I feel like we're talking about our special guest. We should probably now reveal who our special guest is. Buck, I'm going to give you the honor since you have handpicked this fool celebrity for this week. 
That's right. And he has the displeasure of sitting next to me whenever we are at Full HQ. And so <laughs> the easiest person to tap is somebody I've been friends with a long time, but it's our retirement expert here at the Molly Fool, Robert Brokamp, um, who also happens to be a certified financial planner. I think he's also a certified financial counselor. He's also a, a kind of an history uh, expert, too, on the side. So if you want to know about history, Robert's your person to talk to there. And a good friend of mine, certainly at The Fool, and knows probably more. Uh, it's worked on our dividend um, services and a product that we have there. Um, so, Robert, do you have any, what else did I miss? Hello, everybody. It's great to Woo-hoo! be on the show. <laughs> uh, I guess some people are familiar with me from the Motley Fool Answers podcast. That's probably the only other thing That's right. I yeah, would mention. And, uh, I run the RYR service, Rule Your Retirement, and co-advisor for the Fool's Total Income Service, which does talk a little bit about how you turn a portfolio into a paycheck. Robert, it is great to have you this week. You are, of course, a many-time guest on this podcast and a delight to have you back for a non-mailbag reason this particular time. Buck, before we get started, I want to make sure you've introduced yourself. Now, some of us will certainly remember your first appearance a couple months ago and the poll that spawned this podcast, but can you just remind our listeners what you do at The Fool? Yeah, I'm Buck Hartzell, and I'm an analyst here, so you can find picks of mine throughout certainly some of the services here in the U.S. and products, but I also work on our Canadian services, and for those of you who are familiar with that market, know that Canadians have a fondness for dividends, stronger than us Americans, and um, so uh, quite a bit of the picks in our Canadian <laughs> services um, you know, end up being dividend payers out there because they really value those, um, probably more than the U.S., and their companies, a lot of their smaller companies even pay dividends where it's not so common around here. All right, and I guess I'm just going to put one ground rule in place before we start, and that is I am inviting Buck and Bro to take over this podcast. So this is something I don't think I've ever done before, but it's a delight for me, two people I've worked with for more than 20 years. I'm definitely going to be here. In fact, I think I'll play the role of every man, scratch my head at a couple of the things that my experts are saying, and, and wonder what it's like for you at home if you're new to dividend investing or if you have questions. And we have at least one listener question that we received in the week in advance of this. Thank you, Nick Jackson. That'll appear a little bit later in the show. So without further ado, Buck, I am handing the great big imaginary microphone in the sky to you. Oh, thank you. This is great. And um, I, we had another question that we'll get to from the last podcast that we did that originally kind of spawned all this. And that was kind of about stocks that fall out of or fail to be a dividend aristocrat once they're already in the list. So we'll get to that at one point as well. Um, but first, uh, bro, since you joined us, and David used that instead of Robert, so I guess you're okay with that. Um, <laughs> so two things. First of all, can you define what a dividend is for folks out there that don't know what it is? And then maybe provide some context historically for how important, how important are dividends to the overall returns that we see from stocks, at least some historical context. Got it. So when you think about a company, makes money, gets cash, and they have a few things they can do with that cash. Lots of things, actually. Four really biggies, I would say. First of all, you can reinvest in the business. Number two, you could buy another company, just make an acquisition. Number three, you can buy back your own shares. Or number four, you can pay a dividend. And a dividend is just a check sent to shareholders, although these days it's actually just mostly automatically deposited into your brokerage account. It just magically shows up. How important are those cash payments to the historical returns of the stock market? Well, if you, you've probably all heard that since the 20s, U.S. large cap stocks have returned 10% a year. Dividends and dividend reinvestment actually account historically for 4% of that. So a large part of the returns, although it does vary throughout time. So if you look at this last decade or the 1990s, dividends only accounted for about 17% of the return from stocks. But if you look at decades where stock prices didn't move very much, dividends were a bigger part. Like in the 1970s, uh, dividends accounted for 73% of stocks. So when you're saying that, Robert, I just want to be clear on that. You're saying that 10% historical annualized return, four of those percentage points, basically 40% of the stock market's returns come in the form of dividends. But that's been as high as 70 in one decade, and then as low as 17 recently. Right, exactly. And if you look at an individual year level, the the best year for dividends in terms of yield was actually back in the Depression, 1932. Stocks yielded 13.8%. Wow. The lowest was in 2000. S&P 500 yielded just 1.1%. Where are we nowadays? Well, the S&P 500 is at 2.4%, up from 1.9% a year ago. So 
looks better now because prices are lower, but maybe not as high as some people would have expected. Um, and when you look at the history of stock dividends, um, it's important to know that if you go back as far as like the 1870s up through the 1950s, stocks always yielded more than bonds because people felt like you needed to get that higher dividend yield to make stocks worthwhile because stocks were riskier. In the 1950s, that switched to where bonds started yielding more than stocks. And actually, at that point, many people thought, and Warren Buffett has talked about this, they thought, well, stocks must be overvalued, so I'm going to sell my stocks and wait until they yield more, yield more than bonds. If you did that, you had to wait till 2009, because it wasn't until March of 2009 when stocks once again yielded more than bonds, right at the bottom, March 2000, the bottom of the Great Recession. So if that you were still alive, if you were still alive, you could have said, yes, now I will re-enter the market. <laughs> yes, exactly. And of course, that was a good time to get back in the market. The stocks rebounded to where bonds once again yielded more than stocks. And that's been the case until recently. So once again, we're at a point where the 2.4 or 5% or whatever you're getting from your stock portfolio is higher than what you're getting from bonds. Right now, the 10-year treasury is 0.8%. 30-year treasury is 1.4%. Um, yeah. And, and, and something to think about there in context, too, um, Robert, is that uh, profits grow over time. Profits grow of corporations, and that's why we're willing to take less for those. Usually, it's about 6 or 7% a year if you look at the S&P 500. Um, so people are willing to take less for those. Where When you buy a bond today, and let's say it's yielding 1.9% or 1.5%, the coupon, the interest that you receive on that bond is fixed, Right. So you're not going to get, there's no upside in that, right? There's not a huge upside in that bond you're buying for 1.5 and, and 2%. That's why a lot of folks that invest in bonds and fixed income, insurance companies and those kind of things, they're in very short duration bonds. They're not, not buying the long duration ones because they realize I'm not getting much. And, and Buffett even a, a year or two or a couple of years ago said that he thought he thought there was a bubble in bonds. Like who would buy this bond yielding 1.9% when you can get a co corporation that's yielding more than that with its dividend and their profits are growing over time. It seems like an easy decision. And I, and I think he's probably right. A lot of folks have a less in bonds today. You talk about this in retirement quite a bit that they do in, in maybe stocks. Yeah. Uh, and there actually been a few studies that have broken up the market based on high yielders compared to stocks that are middle in the range of yielding or versus stocks that are, don't pay a dividend. And a lot of these studies actually have concluded that higher yielding stocks outperform the, like the market itself as well as no yielders. So uh, that's actually was the whole subject of Jeremy Siegel's book, Jeremy Siegel being the Wharton business professor, uh, author of the classic Stocks for the Long Run. Friend of his, the Fool. Friend of the Fool, yep. Uh, he published The Future for Investors in 2005 and found that higher yielding stocks outperform. A more recent study comes from Ned Davis from 1972 to 2019. Dividend growers, dividend payers returned about 12.8%. Non-payers, 8.6% and the non-payers were more volatile. Now, obviously, many of the, the best investments in Motley Fool history have never paid a dividend. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway doesn't pay a dividend, and it's made Warren Buffett one of the wealthiest men in the world. So you don't have to have a dividend, but historically, dividends are a pretty good uh, indicator, uh, or at least can be a good basis for a strategy, especially if you're someone who's looking for income. And as Buck said, you don't want to settle for the fixed income of a low-paying bond. Um, so that's a bunch of history, um, but really some things have changed considerably over the last four decades, and there's been a shift in companies from paying dividends to buying back their own shares. And so now I'm going to pass the virtual microphone on to Buck to talk a little bit more about the rise in buybacks. All right. So sounds like that's the end of chapter one, guys. We've talked about what dividends are, and then Bro has spoken to the historical importance of dividends. I know on here on the Buck and Bro show here this week, we're going to pass the ball now back to our host, Buck. Buck, what is chapter two entitled? And maybe give us a sneak peek at the chapters that are ahead. Uh, chapter two is a slight detour from our dividend agenda, but it's important. And it's really, it's called the rise of stock buybacks. So we're going to give people a little history of how long have people been buying back stocks and what's the trend today. 
Um, and so it's the rise of stock buybacks. And then our third chapter will be on the dividend aristocrats. That was originally the question that we were asked on the original um, podcast that we did. You betcha. And then our, our fourth chapter will be talking about some dividend stocks that I like out there that were picked kind of fresh off the wagon. Uh, these were just from yesterday. Um, so those will be some good dividend stocks. And then our fifth chapter will be Robert uh, piping back in again and giving us some other investments for those of you who don't want specific stocks, but want to get some yield that might benefit you. So uh-huh. other um, yield investments. Let's Wonderful. Say. Okay, good. So chapter two, the rise of stock buybacks. Yep. Yeah. So this is important. Um, and to give you some kind of quick uh, judge on this, how much people are spending on buybacks versus dividends over time. We got to go back to the 1930s. And if you kind of remember coming out of the Great Depression, we weren't there, but we've read about it. Stocks were relatively cheap. As a matter of fact, they were super cheap. And companies decided, hey, we want to buy back some of our shares because they're so cheap right now. And the people that ran their businesses realized that. Um, but the government stepped in and said, no, 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 let's wait a second here. This is kind of manipulation and it's unfair. So they actually banned stock buybacks in the 1930s. So we didn't see much action um, going on until really the 1970s when a guy uh, came along uh, called Henry Singleton. He ran Teledyne Corporation, which is one of the great stocks of that period and of history. And he was a math guy. And he realized that he could kind of buy back stock when it was cheap. And he did it in a huge way. Um, he ended up buying back 90% of the shares of Teledyne, Teledyne and created a ton of wealth for himself and his shareholders in the 1970s. But stock buybacks still weren't the rage. This was kind of one lone guy out there buying back some stock. It wasn't until the late 1980s and 1990s that really was the kind of birth of the technology companies that we know today. And one of the things that came along with them was the widespread issuance of stock options. Because a lot of these early stage technology companies didn't have a ton of cash to pay to people. So they'd use equity. They'd use stock options for them. Um, This was a great way for those companies to create wealth. And when they did well and they started generating cash, one of the things that they did when they were holding a lot of these options is let's buy back some stock, right? So this really started in earnest in the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, One great thing about that was uh, they didn't have to expense those stock options. So those companies didn't have to pull them down as as an expense. And lots of people, including Warren Buffett, said if if these stock options aren't a compensation expense, what exactly are they? (laughs) Well, exactly. um, The the SEC caught up to this after a while. And by the time 2004 came along, they said you're going to have to expense those options. And then companies decided to issue restricted stock. So it's a different form. So a stock option, you have to pay for it. It has a strike price. So if you issue it with a strike price of 10 and the stock's worth $9.99, that option is essentially worthless, right, if it's on the expiration date. Whereas restricted stock, if you give that to somebody and you say, hey, I'm going to give you $1,000 of this stock and it's now at $6, if it goes to $3, you still have $500 worth of stock. It's of value regardless of what the price is, and you don't have to pay the company a whole bunch of money when you exercise it. It's automatically worth whatever it is, whatever the price of the stock is. So restricted stocks, issuing restricted stocks became a bigger thing in 2004. Um, that's when buybacks really, really started to kick in. And, and we saw this, and it's been going ever since 2004. We've seen companies spend more and more on buybacks. I have a pet peeve that I'm going to talk about when companies mention buybacks and dividends in the same voice in a a few moments. But what I do want to say is in that time period from 2004 through today, companies have not been particularly good at buying back stock. There's not many Henry Singletons of Teledyne out there. They just, they aren't very good at it. We saw this happen in 2008 where buybacks peaked. And what happened in In 2009, when stocks were very cheap and they were holding a lot of cash, companies cut way back on their buybacks. Not only did they cut back on buybacks, they issued a lot more stocks to their constituents and their employees. So they tend to time their buybacks at the worst possible time. Um, So they don't create a ton of value with those. In 2018, just to give you some context for buybacks versus dividends, companies bought back $806 billion worth of stock in the S&P 500. And they spent about $460 billion in dividends. So that's about half. So double the amount of dividends is what they spent on buybacks, and that was in 2018. That's I remarkable, just, Buck. And let me just ask you about that, because I know that often we at The Fool, and we have a lot of investment analysts, and you're getting to hear from a very good one right now, my fellow Rule Breaker listeners, but we have a lot of analysts who look at it just and often say, 
They're not making good decisions. Like they're not really stock pickers. You'd think that they would know their own company, but they often make the noob mistakes that we try to tell people to avoid through our podcasts. But there's a whole second bunch of critics these days, and I'm sure you're familiar with this as well. I'm just curious if you or Robert has an opinion on this. People who say that's a real waste of money. It's not creating any real value. It's not creating new jobs in the world. Um, it's almost viewed as unconscious capitalism, a bad or negative form of capital allocation. Do you sympathize with that or you di- do you disagree with that? Either of you. I, I, I disagree with that. Um, and, and I'll tell you why. Uh, there's only a limit to what companies can reinvest in their business. I, as a shareholder, would love for a company to reinvest their money back in the business, create more jobs, as long as they earn a suitable return on that investment, right? But there are some companies, particularly if we look at the top companies listed in the S&P 500 right now, I'm talking about Amazons and Apple and um, pickier kind of uh, light kind of model company. Um, they don't always have a ton of reinvestment needs. Now, Amazon does. They're building warehouses all over the country and that kind of stuff. Apple, not so much. I mean, when you're generating 50 to $60 billion in free cash flow a year, I mean, there's only so many cool headquarters that you can build that are over budget and all <laughs> rounded, right? Um, but I would love for them to reinvest that. But then these companies that are so successful have to look, what can we do beyond that, right? Once, um, because you start to earn less and less returns on those investments. So I'm not against them buying back stock. I am against them when they do it non-strategically. And that's what most of the companies that we follow and look at do. They just say, hey, we're going to buy back these to offset dilution. And hey, shareholder, you should be very happy that we're doing that for you. I don't really feel happy about it. It's more of a transfer of wealth to the insiders of the company. I don't feel great about it, particularly if you buy back shares at any price. Robert, do you have sort of the same feelings? Yeah, I mean, theoretically, I'm not opposed to buying back shares, and you can understand why it would benefit all shareholders because you're reducing share count and earnings are spread over fewer shares. But the 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 history of it shows that the majority of people are buying back shares at the wrong time, buying back at high prices, and now when prices come down like they are now, companies are not buying back shares. So it's almost the opposite; they're buying high and selling, and and unable to buy when they're low. And, and recently, I just read an article that they were making some um, guesses for the year ahead, 2020, and they expected that stock buybacks would half. So they'd be half what they were last year, which was close to that 800 million mark. 2018 had some weird stuff where we had some tax relief and some money was expatriated back and some things that kind of gave an artificial little bump there. But still, buybacks in 2019 were, were just below that $800 billion mark. It's going to be half that rate this year as companies decide to conserve cash. So once again, they've proven they're not very good at, at the timing of it. Um, and I said, in addition to not buying back stock, they're going to be issuing plenty of stock and probably more than they did last year. So, Buck, I sense we're nearing the end of Chapter 2, the rise of stock buybacks. I know you mentioned you have a pet peeve here, and maybe you can give the money takeaway line for our listeners at the end of each chapter. Uh, so, Chapter 2 as well. Yep. So, I do have a pet peeve to add, and I want to give some context on S&P 500 companies and how many pay a dividend. My pet peeve is... I really dislike it when I read and I pick up an annual report or a conference call or management says, we've returned this amount of money to shareholders this year through uh, both dividends and stock buybacks. Mm. And that's a pet peeve of mine because a stock buyback is not a return of capital to me. And often it doesn't benefit you know, shareholders. And we've kind of talked about how the timing is bad. It doesn't create a whole lot of value for them. Only one of those is a return of capital to me, and that's an actual dividend that I get. It is double taxed, so it's taxed at the corporate level, and it is, I'm also taxed at it as the individual level if I hold it in a taxable account. Um, but that's actually a return of capital to me, and I directly benefit from it. Often, you don't benefit from buybacks. Mm, okay, well, we like pet peeves on this podcast, Buck. <laughs> okay. I, uh, once or twice a year, I'll dedicate an entire episode just to airing it out, so I'm glad okay. that you shared that. And I, I'm sure you got the hackles of some of our longtime listeners up with that point. I, I had yeah. kind of been missing that linguistic leisure domain but now i see through it and i agree with you yep thank you i appreciate that and one more point before we conclude the chapter i think you know beware i I start with a skeptical view when a company says we're buying back stock so my my kind of thing is prove it to me prove that you're good at and you create value over time so i'm skeptical from the start and i would encourage other folks to do that as well there are some that are good at it and strategic but they are the vast minority all right so i realized 
earlier I asked you, Buck, could you give us kind of the money takeaway line for chapter two? And I know you have it. And you're going to do that. But I skipped it for chapter one, talking about the historical importance of dividends. So maybe, Robert, if you would, sir, could you provide my listeners the kind of money takeaway line for chapter one, the historical importance of dividends, and then Buck for chapter two? So I'll just say, I'm going to close here, the money takeaway is with some actual money attached to it, some actual numbers from Morningstar. And the, and the, the bottom line is you shouldn't ignore the power of dividends. So if you invested $10,000 in the S&P 500 in 1970, but didn't reinvest the dividends, you just spent them, that $10,000 would have grown to 350000 If instead you reinvested those dividends, 10000 grew into $1.6 million. Bottom line again, don't ignore dividends. So the conclusion of chapter two, the rise of stock buybacks, is that companies are favoring buybacks. They're growing at a quicker rate than dividends, and they currently spend about two times as much on buybacks as they do on dividends. Unfortunately, they haven't proven to be very good at those. Mm. So you can use um, stock buybacks as a contraindicator. So if you see that buybacks are really high, like they have been in 2018 and 2019, be a little patient because once they drop off, that usually is a good sign that you should come in as an individual investor and buy. All right. Now, normally I'd probably read an ad at this point, but we've found that advertisers aren't as interested during <laughs> coronavirus. And so I think in some ways, listeners who may not love ad reads will be even happier to note that we're just going to go right on from here to chapter three. Now, if my math is right and my memory is right, I think, gentlemen, chapter three is entitled Dividend Aristocrats. Yes, it is. Absolutely. So welcome, everybody, to chapter three. Um, I'm going to start by saying a little bit about the total income service here at The Fool that I mentioned. And every stock we recommend in total income is a dividend pair for a couple of reasons that we've talked about. First of all, dividends historically grow at 6% a year. So they beat inflation. It's inflation beating income. And they're more reliable. So if you're looking back to 1958, there have only been eight years when the S&P 500 as a whole cut their dividends. And in six of those years, it was like 1% or 2%, not very much. And only two years was it significant. 1959, dividends were cut 12%. 2009, dividends were cut 22%. Honestly, I think this year will probably be another year where we see significant declines. But still, when you think of like, like a retiree, for example, who wants to live off their portfolio and has a retirement of 20 to 30 years, you can feel pretty confident that you're going to get a good inflation-beating stream of income from a group of stocks. Isn't that amazing to think, Robert, that only a few times over the course of a human lifetime have dividends actually been slashed across the S&P 500? That is remarkable. When people talk so much about the stock market as a great big gambling machine or all the volatility and market crashes and rises and greed and fear, and yet this year, it does sound like this will be the third year in kind of a human lifetime where, the, where dividends do go down, but wow, what constancy. Right. And I think that's what makes them so attractive. And when you see these studies that find that dividend payers outperform non-payers, part of it is the characteristics of a company that pays a dividend because they are significantly cash flow positive and they have committed to paying out that income every quarter. Um, so, of course, you can find some of these companies yourself. But if you're looking for a group of them all set up for you, check out the S&P Dividend Aristocrats. So it's an index that was formed in 2005. All the companies come from the S&P 500, but then they take the companies that have grown their dividends for 25 straight years. So these are companies that have a long history of growing their dividends. It's an equally weighted index. So unlike the S&P 500, which is market cap weighted, so the biggest companies have the biggest weighting, this is equally weighted, quarterly rebalanced, uh, and they update the companies once a year. And if you look at the performance of it, when the index came out in 2005, for the next several years, more than a decade, it outperformed the S&P 500. It's actually just in the last three years that it has started to lag. Because of the last three years, the best performing sector has been tech stocks. And there are very few tech stocks in the dividend aristocrats. And only like 1.6% of the index are technology stocks. Uh, it currently holds 64 companies but almost half of them have actually been growing their dividends for more than 50 years. So these are long-standing cash-generating companies. Um, that said, the, the yield itself is not that high. So it's currently about 2.7%, so not that much higher than 
the S&P 500. You're really looking at companies that you can rely on to pay, to pay a, growing, a growing dividend. Uh, and just to look at some of the, the top holdings that are currently in it, and again, it's equally weighted and regularly rebalanced, so a top holding doesn't stay at the top for long, but just currently some of the top holdings are Clorox, Walmart, um, Kimberly-Clark, Colgate, Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, those types of companies. Now, every year it does reconstitute, and some companies do get dropped. And I'm now going to turn the microphone over to Buck within the chapter to talk a little bit about some of the companies that have been kicked out of the dividend aristocrats. I, we could call them fallen aristocrats, maybe. <laughs> fallen aristocrats, that's, that's exactly right. And I think the original question that we got on the podcast, David, was somebody asking about what happens to a company and why do they drop out of the dividend aristocrats? And you know, I think at that time I talked about GE, which was, you know, a company that's very old, the original Dow company and paid a dividend for a long time and then ran into difficulties in, in 2008 and 2009. Um, but there's a lot of reasons why uh, companies stop paying a dividend that, that, that have paid one for a long time. And I'm going to go through one example, but we'll mention a few other companies that might be of interest. And then we'll pull out some common themes um, uh, in that at the end. But, Sounds uh, great. Yep. So there was an article on Dividend.com, and they talked about the biggest dividend stock collapses of all time. And some of these, we, we're all familiar with these companies. They include General Motors, Kodak, AIG, Bank of America, Ford, Citigroup, uh, British Petroleum, and JCPenney. I mean, I think we're all familiar with those names as being giants at a time that had just kind of fallen and, and are, are not very relevant um, for a big part today. Um, GM, let's take a look at them. They were founded in 1908, probably one of, if not the world's most you know, valuable, um, powerful company, probably around the 1950s and 1960s. Huge market share of the auto market, which was growing uh, nicely. And they paid regular dividends um, for a long time. And we get up to 1997 to 2005, they paid 50 cents a quarter. That's a pretty big dividend, you know, $2 um, over the year. By the mid-2000s, this sported a 10% stock yield. And, and this is going to be the kind of you know, big takeaway lesson here we get to the end. They had a big yield, not because the company did really well and was gaining market share and selling more and more cars at higher and higher profits and raising their dividend. They had a high yield because the stock had underperformed and it actually continued to go down over a long period of time. And so the stock you're saying, Buck, had declined basically to $20 per share. And yep. so with $2 per share in dividend, that's 10%. And that's the dividend yield that we're talking about, the interest rate, in effect, that you get paid for holding the stock. And so, yeah, so that constancy of the $2 dividend per share matched against a declining stock price that had dropped to 20 it's really unsustainable. No, it is unsustainable. And you see a higher, we call, when folks look at this, I know Robert and people that look at picking dividend stocks, they look at something called the payout ratio, which is the proportion of their net income that they're paying out in their dividend. And sometimes you see some of these companies going over 100%. Well, that's a big warning flag, or even for some of us in the high 80s or so. Let me jump in there, Buck, because I think the payout ratio is one of those takeaway phrases, especially for people who are regular rule breaker investors, but don't spend a lot of time with dividends. I want to make sure everybody walks away understanding what the payout ratio is. Can you just kind of make up an example? Maybe make up some numbers for GM if you like. Yeah. Sure. Like so GM was paying fifty cents a quarter, so that's two dollars a year in dividends. What was their net income or their earnings per share? You know, if their earnings per share was two dollars too, then they were paying out a hundred percent of their earnings in dividends. That doesn't leave a whole lot left over to reinvest in the business and buy new machinery and open new plants and hire new employees and do all those kind of things. So certainly at 100% and above, it's a big red warning flag. For some of us, and it depends on the industry that you're operating, if you have guaranteed revenues like a utility or maybe even railroads and stuff, they can pay out a higher proportion of their earnings than other companies can. Um, but if you have some variability in those earnings, like a car company where you have a bad economy, you don't want to be paying out 90 or 100% or even 80% of your profits as a regular quarterly dividend. 
when an economy tanks, right? So that's a bad thing. So payout ratios moderately around 60, 50 to 60 percent is reasonable. Okay, that's what I was most. wondering. Yeah. That's what I was yep. wondering. Okay, but good. You get up into the 80s, 90s, and 100s, and you know, there are some things that will happen from year to year where a company will have a bad year and they may spike their payout ratio a little bit, but then it comes right back down again. That's not a big thing. But when you see a continual decline in the economics of the business like we saw in GM, and all of a sudden, you know, people were looking just at one thing to say, wow, GM, I know them and I like Corvettes and they pay a 10% dividend. I want some of that. Well, you better be careful because there could be some other stuff that's very negative about that company. And often there is, whether it's pension liabilities or the company's not being run that right or they're losing market share. Um, be very care be skeptical of a company with a super high dividend payout ratio um, that's paying out a real high proportion of their earnings. Yeah. All right. So, Robert, what more do you want to say about dividend aristocrats or are we getting near the end of this chapter? I think we're at the end of this chapter, so I'll, I'll just give us the money line here. And that is, uh, if you are looking for income from your portfolio, you can go with bonds. You'll get a stability. You'll get that fixed income, which means it doesn't grow. But you should complement it with stocks, a diversified portfolio of dividend payers, because historically, you're going to have income that is surprisingly reliable and that keeps up and beats inflation. Mm. And before we move on to chapter four, I'm just thinking about constancy and resilience. And I'm, I just, this is a total detour, only 60 seconds or so. But I was researching a stock this past week that I decided ultimately we won't be picking for Motley Fool Stock Advisor. It's a small company, but check out this record. So the company is J&J &J Snack Foods. If you've ever had soft pretzels, you've probably tasted their wares. If you enjoy the Luigi or Icy with two E's frozen treats, that's from J&J &J Snack Food. This is a company that was started by Gerald Schreiber. He bought it out of bankruptcy in 1971. They have, get this, they have raised their revenues every single year for the last 48 years. That's an incredible revenue aristocrat, a phrase that people don't rock as often, but all of my listeners and both of my analysts will readily understand the concept. Sadly, don't you think they have virtually no chance of keeping that streak going. So 2020 is a year that's going to break many a streak. And in a lot of cases, it comes down, and we talk about this a lot, about the resilience of companies' balance sheets, who can thrive, who can survive, and who will not survive. And a lot of it is what you were doing with that capital, how you were allocating it, storing it up in some cases for a bad winter, which we're seeing right now. Other companies just not doing so or not able to do so. So dividend aristocrats, Revenue aristocrats, really the aristocrats of business, the ones that just keep getting it done, not just year after year, but decade after decade. All right, Buck, I think we've gotten to chapter four. I'm sure you're rubbing your hands together a little bit, your proverbial hands at least, because you have in mind some dividend stocks that you think our listeners should take a look at. That's right. And I think... Um... This is a really good time to do so, David. Uh, stock prices have fallen on, you know, on average 25 to 30%, which gives us an opportunity to get into some of these stocks at really nice prices, and it bumps up the yield. So we're going to get a return on the capital we invested higher than we would have just a couple months ago. And I'm picking companies that I think are very strong and in a pretty good position to have good results. So let's just start it off. Um, the first company is one that most folks haven't uh, probably heard of. It's called CNA Financial. Um, and when you type this into Word, it'll autocorrect to C-A-N, can, and it's annoying. It happens every time. <laughs> um, but it's C-N-A Financial. The ticker is also C-N-A. And um, today, you're, you're getting this stock in the 30s. Um, so it's around $32, $33 a share, depending on the day. Um, here's the great thing. Last year, they paid out $3.40 um, in dividends. And they pay a regular quarterly dividend. Uh, in addition to a $2 special dividend they just paid this March. Um, this is an insurance company. Um, and the insurance business, for those of you who follow along, has been it was a really good year for insurers. A couple years ago, we had two back-to-back -back really bad years of catastrophes and that kind of stuff that really hit insurers. And this year has been very good because they've been able to raise prices. So some of those insurers that were writing bad business pulled back on their business. Others stepped in and they raised prices, and that happened kind of all year. I suspect that prices are going to go up next year as well, David. So it's a pretty good, um, pretty good time to be an insurance company. And um, here's the interesting thing about CNA. 90% of their stock is owned by a parent company, Lowe's, although CNA is publicly traded on its own. 
they can't buy back their own stock because one entity owns 90% of them. That's Lowe's, ticker is L. And so buybacks are not an option for them. So they just basically pay out about a billion dollars in capital every year, most of which, about 89%, goes directly to the parent Lowe's. Uh, wow. the controlling entity. So if you're interested in a company that pays a nice dividend, uh, they do something kind of cool. $2 of that is a special dividend. They've done that since 2017. Um, if something happens and they have a bad year this year, they can always pull back that special dividend and say, we're not going to do that this year or we're going to cut it down and make it a little bit less. But I think the better part of most years, you're going to see um, yields and dividends coming out of this company are going to be $3 and above. Yeah. So thank you for that, Buck. And I'm glad you mentioned the concept of a special dividend. Now, not many companies do this. Of course, most companies, many companies don't pay any dividend at all. But of those that do, some do elect to pay special dividends. I can think of a star performer for me, a Motley Fool Stock Advisor, which I recommended in July of 2012, and that's Transdime Group, yep. TDG. This is a company that regularly plays, pays out, and I guess it's not as special if it's regular, but it's, <laughs> I mean, there's no schedule for it, but regularly yep. TDG has paid out a pretty generous dividend. So this is a concept, and I guess my question for my, my listeners, people who may be new to this, are, are Special dividends factored into yields are historically or even in the present day, or are those just totally outside and not really recorded? So the general rule is that special dividends are not included when you look up like a dividend yield on fool.com or Yahoo Finance or anything like that. But I have seen times where it has happened. So if you ever have a stock where the dividend yield jumps dramatically and the price hasn't fallen very much, it might be due to a special dividend. Okay. Well, anyway, so CNA Buck is one of the companies that does this. Again, it's it's a bonus. I, I was wondering before we move to stock number two, um, is the insurance business that good or healthy? It feels like all businesses is getting hurt. And I'm wondering, are people going to be able to pay their premiums and all the rest? But you're feeling rock solid in terms of CNA's performance. So I like CNA for a variety of reasons, and we don't have time to go full deep dive into them. They're trading at a discount to book value, um, and they're a company that's regularly earns more than they pay out. So that's something we look at as a combined ratio in insurance companies. Yep. If it's less than 100%, that's good. They usually operate about 94, 95. They had a longtime CEO who retired. They hired a guy from Chubb, Dino Robusto, who's a great CEO. He's working on the expense side of the equation. So the things have been going great there. And this company's a specialty insurer. So I just the way I would think about it is they mostly insure stuff that others don't. I mean, and so you can charge a little bit more for it yep. and your ratios are better. Kind of like Markel. Yep. Yes, exactly. Although so, any any company would love to have a CEO named Dino Robusto. Robusto. Are you That's kidding right. me? Come yes, on now. I know. And he's, he's doing very well so far. I mean, having a good business. And so I'd say when you combine the things of this is a good business, regularly has um, combined ratios below 100%. It's trading at a discount to book value. It's also growing book value. It's generating a lot of excess cash throughout the last several years, even during the bad times. Um, it's a good business. There's been some worry, and I think leg legitimately, about some of the political climate on how much our insurer is going to have to assume. After um, the last kind of pandemic things that we saw, the flu-related and um, years ago, all insurers exclude pandemic insurance. So that's an extra rider. So you have to pay extra for that. Well, almost no one did, though we saw Wimbledon did. They're going to get a payout of $141 million because they've paid an extra premium of, of $2 million a year for the last 17 years to insure Wimbledon, and they're going to get a $141 million payout this year. But there's been a lot of political pressure to say, hey, insurers, although people didn't pay you for this, you're going to have to pay out for business interruption insurance and all that kind of stuff, even though you excluded in your contracts pandemics. There's questions around that. I don't, I don't take a line on it other than to say that if it's put in there and insurers have to operate under the pretense that we're going to be responsible for stuff that we specifically excluded from contracts, then insurance rates are going to go through the roof. And nobody wants that, including the business operators and everybody else that's involved. I think when you have extreme events like this, this is a time where the federal government has to step in. This is this can't all be put on insurers. So I ultimately don't think it's going to go that way. Okay. But who knows what the where the political winds will blow? But this well, is a strong insurer with plenty of capital and well run. And I'm glad that you referenced past pandemics. I mean, the 2009 H1N1, the swine flu, didn't really reach that kind of scale. 
but it did give kind of a dry run of an understanding about how insurance would be treated or there are some precedents in place and reason yep. for confidence around CNA. Okay, what's stock yes. number two? Okay, so stop number two is Brookfield Asset Management. This is a Canadian company, one off our scorecard uh, in Canada that we've loved for a long time. Their current dividend yield is about 1.4%. So that's less than the S&P 500. So you're like, Buck, why do you bring me this minuscule 1.4%? That's what all, I was about to say. I know. I just gave you 10%. All right. So let's <laughs> average these out. It's pretty good. But but here's the thing that I like about this. And this is in opposition to dividend aristocrats that have paid a dividend for a long time. These guys are relatively new to the game. They're an excellent, well-run business. And, and they're a conglomerate. They have their hands in real estate. They have their hands in infrastructure projects. So bridges and toll booths and railroads and data centers and cell phone towers. I mean, a whole bunch of things. We don't have time to describe everything that Brookfield does, but they have a lot of publicly traded business businesses. And here's what it comes down to. Um, they anticipate that they're going to generate about $60 billion in free cash flow over the next 10 years. They are an asset manager with almost 300 billion of interest earning assets, and they keep banking more and more of those that are gonna be paid out as their investment funds mature. These guys are an alternative asset manager. They're super well run. And over the next 10 years, that 60 billion's gotta go somewhere. And management has said it's gonna go to dividends or it's gonna go to buybacks. And it depends on where the stock price is. If the stock is very low, we're gonna buy back stock at attractive prices. And if the stock price high, we're gonna pay it out in dividends. And I trust these guys to actually do it well. <laughs> so you got a 1.4% dividend. You get access to a really well-run company that I know is going to be much bigger three and five and 10 years from now. And you're going to benefit. You're getting in before all those dividends and all those buybacks happen. So if you were, got 10 years, put some money in Brookfield Asset Management, the well, ticker and is I, BAM. I particularly appreciate that point, Buck, because... I think our discipline as rule breaker investors is to think about the future, what people can't see yet, and right. to invest where the puck is going to be. And yeah. so I particularly like, even though CNA has a dividend yield well in excess, eight percentage points plus yeah. of, of Brookfield Asset Management, um, I totally hear you in terms of the, where the growth's coming and how you're, you could expect more and more dividends from a stock like this one, given that 10-year expectation. Exactly. So that's that's Brookfield Asset Management. And now for those that want a little bit higher, I'm going to give you another Brookfield entity. Okay, so that's Brookfield Infrastructure. And there's a couple reasons. This ticker is BIPC uh, for those of you in the United States. On March 31st, they introduced a new share class. Previously, we could only buy this and it was a partnership unit. You had to file a K-1 for tax purposes with a little bit of a pain for people here in the U.S. And so they simplified things and introduced this new share class. So this is a great chance for investors here in the United States to get into this business. They currently have about a 5.4% dividend yield. These guys own toll roads, other infrastructure assets, including railroads, cell phone towers, data centers, um, you name it. They own anything infrastructure that's big and hard to manage. They own it. Some of those businesses will be impacted. Their ports, they own a big port. That'll be impacted. Others are doing very well. Um, but overall, you have a 5.4% dividend yield, and that's going to grow at anywhere from 5 to 9% a year, um, which is well above the inflation hurdle that uh, Robert talked about earlier. And uh, like I said, this is a great run business. You're getting about a 5.5% dividend yield. It's a good business. About 90% of their revenues are inflation protected or contracted, which means even during this downturn, they're going to be getting paid. Um, so uh, I think it's a great business, and it gives you a little bit of a higher yield than Brookfield Asset Management, the parent company, which owns about 30% of Brookfield infrastructure. Mm, okay. Three pretty compelling ideas. All companies paying dividends at really varying yields. You gave us a 10, you gave us a 1, and a 5. So, Buck, you gave us a nice mix there. Is that it, or do you have one bonus pick? I have a bonus pick. And and this one is it's it's a really good, well-run business, but it's going to be more impacted by the downturn that we're having here than the other three. And so I'm telling you this. This is one I think I would average into as, a, as an investor and a, a shareholder. So this is Western Alliance Bank. Um, the ticker is WAL. It currently sports a 3% dividend. And here's why I like this business. They just announced their first dividend in third quarter of 2019. So this is their very first dividend. At the time, this was a 50 plus dollar stock. It was about a 1% dividend. Not that interesting. 
but because of the economic turmoil and all that kind of stuff, the stock price has come down. So we're getting what is a 3% dividend yield on a company that only paid out probably less than 30% payout ratio. So less than 30% of their profits. In other words, in normal economic environment, which I think we will get back to, I don't know how long it's going to take, David, but we're going to get back to normal operating environments. This company is going to pay out more and more of its profits. And if you buy it here at a 3% dividend, this is a stock that we could look at five years from now and go, on my original investment, I'm now getting a 6 or 8 or 10 or 12% payout. Mm. So I think this dividend will grow over time. And they're a bank. They're most of their business is in Arizona, Nevada, and California. But the cool thing about them is they have a bunch of these things they call national business lines. So they do loans all over the country, and they do them with very low loss rates. So an example is they give loans, and this is one that will be impacted. They give loans to hotel operators that buy franchises. So Marriott, which is a pick company you're well familiar with, has done very well. They've gotten hurt in a big way during this downturn. If you're a franchisee for Marriott, you want to buy a hotel franchise, these guys will loan you. Their average loan is about $10 million on a hotel franchise, and they have them in most of the big metropolitan areas. They aren't out in the middle of nowhere, um, and that's something that they do. They also handle HOA fees. So anybody that's listening that lives in a condominium that pays an HOA fee, these guys do administration on that. And what they've seen over time with these special national business lines, what they call them, people aren't so price sensitive, right? They just want stuff that works very well and is smooth and is convenient for them. The HOA, they're not worried about earning a great return on that. So as a result, their cost, their deposit base is very low. So less than a percent, about 0.86% is their cost of funds and they lend out money at over 5%. So their net interest margin is about 4.4%. That crushes all the big banks, Citigroup, Bank of America, all those, they're half the rate. So this company earns a high return on equity. They generate a lot of excess capital. They've grown nicely. They're gonna be impacted though, no doubt about it, um, by the virus. But it's one where I think the stock decline is overrun a little bit here. So if we're looking at where the business is going and where the stock's going, buy some now, add a little bit to it three months from now, add a little bit more maybe three months from then, and you'll kind of average into a nice position in a company that I think is going to pay a growing dividend for 10 years and longer. W-A-L right. is the ticker for that. Very well explained. And HOA fees, homeowners association fees, amounts of money paid monthly by owners of certain types of residential properties. And in this case, people who live in the Southwest, where there are a lot of those properties. Buck, thank you very much for generously sharing four dividend investing ideas. And that's going to wrap up chapter four. I mean, I, I think the money line is something like, hey, you fools, you just got four free stock picks, but do you want to <laughs> deliver anything else as your chapter four money takeaway line here? Yeah. So I would say from my takeaway line here, and you can look at these businesses, there's kind of CNA is a special situation, but a lot of these are early dividend payers, right? They, they don't have 25 year history of raising dividends, but as a result, their payout ratios are lower and all these businesses are growing. They're generating more and more profits each and every year. This year will be an exception because it's a down year. There's no doubt about it. But I think these companies are all on the upswing. They're going to generate more profits later on. And so we're kind of investing early on in the cycles of these businesses at what I think are good prices instead of looking for just this 25-year track record that we see from a dividend aristocrat. All right. And that takes us to our final chapter, Chapter 5. And while the focus of this week's Rule Breaker Investing podcast is nearly 100% on dividend investing stocks, Robert, you're going to make it not 100% because it's a great big world out there. Other things pay dividends that aren't stocks. Right. And, then, and I think for a lot of people who might be listening to this, love the idea of having a portfolio of dividend payers, but aren't so inclined to pick the individual stocks themselves, or they want to make sure they have a broad selection of dividend payers. Some great options are some dividend-focused ETFs. And I'm going to give you four choices here. When you look at dividend-focused ETFs, you basically have two types. They're the types that maybe not have particularly high yields today. They're focused on companies that are growing their dividends. And then there's the type that is focused on companies that have high yields today. So I'm going to give you two from each of those categories. Right. So first of all, let's say you just love the idea of the dividend aristocrats. Well, there's an ETF for that. It is the ProShares S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats ETF. Ticker is N-O-B-L, Noble, without the E, N-O-B-L. <laughs> so quick way to get the dividend aristocrats, current yield 2.7%. Then there's the Vanguard Dividend Appreciation ETF. Symbol is V-I-G. 
has just a yield of 2.2%, not very high, but the way I like, I like the way they've constructed the index it follows, it follows the NASDAQ US Dividend Achievers Select Index, has more tech, 10% of it is in tech, the top holding is Microsoft, so it's a little bit more diversified in terms of sector. When we move to the high yielders, there's the Spider S&P Dividend ETF, the symbol is SDY, not SPY, but mm-hmm. SDY. And that takes from the S&P um, High Yield Dividend Aristocrats Index, which is basically the S&P 1500. Companies have been paying dividends for 20 years or longer, but have high yields. That currently is yielding 3.5%. And finally, the Vanguard High Dividend Yield ETF, ticker VYM, follows the FTSE High Dividend Yield Index, has a current yield of 4.2%. So they're all constructed differently. You could actually own all four to have a a good portfolio of dividend payers. I own both of the Vanguard ETFs. Uh, And the money takeaway here is many times throughout this podcast, I've said a diversified portfolio of dividend payers has reliable inflation-beating income. You do have to have that diversification and buying a two or three of these dividend ETFs will provide that instant diversification. All right. Well, I want to thank both Buck and Robert once again for joining me on this special dividend investing episode of Rule Breaker Investing. We did solicit some questions ahead of time. Nick Jackson wrote in, in some ways, Nick, if you've been listening, I hope you have attentively throughout this hour, you might now understand the answer to this, but maybe this serves as kind of a wrapper, guys, for thinking about investing. So Nick wrote in and said, Hi, David and Buck. Really glad you're doing this. Is it clearly is important to be diversified among growth income and some hybrid stocks, especially Nick writes these days. A dividend is often expressed as a percent yield. And I realize the yield changes based on stock price fluctuations. Well, that's exactly right. He goes on to say, Buck, I often see, especially in the last few weeks, headlines that'll say something like, you should buy, insert stock here, as its dividend reaches 5% yield, let's say, right? Something like that. So Nick says, why is that considered an especially good buying opportunity? Because the the actual dollar amount of the dividend hasn't actually changed. To use an example from earlier, if General Motors is just paying out $2 a share this year, why, Nick wonders aloud, does that matter what the yield is per se? He's still getting that $2 share dividend. Yeah. Well, I think, Nick, uh, what we're looking at here is you get an opportunity to add when the share price is low, right? Like if, if you're buying when the share price is low, whether it pays a dividend or not, that's always a good thing. But I but I think the other point that this underscores is you don't want to go out looking for dividend stocks. As a matter of fact, I never really, all the stocks that I mentioned, I never looked and said, I'm going to find a dividend stock. I was just out looking for good companies to understand them. They happen mm. to pay dividends, so they make a good fit for this. But certainly if I was looking for dividend stocks, I wouldn't just look at the dividend yield. We talked about General Motors as being one of those examples. Um, uh, a high yield is often something to be skeptical of. Red and flag. I would, yes. And I would particularly uh, be wary of companies that have a high dividend yield that when you look at them without even looking at the financials and everything else, just go, is this company a leader in their field? Do I think they're going to be more valuable five and 10 years from now? Are they hitting the ball out of the park? If they're not, and this is a company you think is declining in relevance and importance in our society, and they happen to have a high dividend, I exclude it right away, right? So just looking at dividend yield alone is not enough. You have to know where it's coming from and how good the business is and how well they're operated and how good the leadership and all those other things that we like to look at brands and quality and that kind of thing. And maybe that's a money takeaway line for the entire episode. I love, Buck, that you found these companies not by hunting or screening for yield, but you just love the market. You love researching business and you happen to find great companies that are paying dividends and you highlighted some attractive ones for us, a nice, a nice range of them. I want to thank you. I want to thank Robert. Robert, I really appreciate your funds, that the ETFs providing dividends, providing income at the rate of around 2.5%, depending on what we're talking about, for people who need that at the stage of their lives. So it was a wonderful time with two of my best friends here at The Motley Fool to share with you their thinking, both historically and very much in the here and now, about dividend investing. Now, if you do find yourself interested by the topic or if we aroused a new question, well, two weeks from today, we'll be doing, of course, our April mailbag. So the email address is rbi at fool.com. Or of course, you can tweet us at RBI podcast on Twitter. If you have questions, follow-ups, thoughts about dividends, this seems like a good month to do it because we featured an entire episode of our show 
solely on dividends. So for now, anyway, the Buck and Bro Show must end. But thank you again, Buck and Robert. It's been great to be here. Thank you for having us. Uh, find some great stocks out there, whether it be dividends or not. I'm glad you're curious. And if you're listening and what, uh, at this time of day when things are going on in the world, you're going to do very well. Thank you very much, Buck. And yeah, I, I hasten to add, I'll just, as Buck goes out the door, I'll mention he's not even a self-fashioned dividend expert. I just kind of know Buck knows a lot about investing. And so as I thought about putting the show together, I thought, I want Buck to put that together. But well, you're not quite out the door, Buck. You'd be the first to say that this is not your full-time focus, dividend investing. No, I've never worked on any of our dividend services. And like I said, but uh, I don't look specifically for dividend stocks, but I don't look for anything specific, really, when I go out and do research. We're just looking for great companies led by people that are honest and capable. And uh, you know, from there on, some of them pay dividends, and that's fine with us. We didn't mention at all today, Mercado Libre is a great uh, up-and-coming disruptive growth story of a company it's paid a modest small dividend for quite a bit of time. So even in your area of growth companies, we find some of these pay, us, pay a modest dividend. And uh, to me, that's usually a positive sign for some of those businesses. There's some discipline that comes along with paying that modest dividend and all that goes along with it. All right. Well, next week, it's going to be a Review of Palooza episode. So that's right. Three years ago, I picked five stocks for April the giraffe. I will re-explain who April is and why I was picking stocks for a giraffe next week. How have those stocks done? Two years ago, I picked five stocks I own that you should too. And then last year, I picked five stocks for the age of miracles. We'll be reviewing all 15 of those stock picks and what we can learn together. I hope the market continues to rise in between this week and next week, that will make my numbers look better. But of course, mainly I'm hoping the stock market rises for you and me all the time. So thank you very much for suffering fools gladly once again this week. Stay safe out there. Wash your darn hands and fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.